Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. The Hamilton Bulldogs have a chance to earn a spot in the Memorial Cup final. The NHL crowns a new Stanley Cup champion. Does Premier Doug Ford's new cabinet include a dose of nepotism? 20,000 tech sector jobs have vanished over the last two months. What gives? A new Game of Thrones sequel is in the works. And how did Jupiter become our solar system's largest planet? The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. One team will win tonight, and that team will be off to the final of the Memorial Cup. It's the Bulldogs, it's the Cataracts, the semifinal of the Memorial Cup tonight, and the winner will play the host St. John's Sea Dogs in Wednesday's tournament finale. Tim Roselle is Moncton Wildcats play-by-play announcer and freelance journalist out in Atlantic Canada. Tim, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Um, Good news, I understand, this morning from the Hamilton Bulldogs camp. Nathan Steos, uh, the uh, OHL Defenseman of the Year, is skating this morning, which is phenomenal news. Uh, Looking back over the last uh, few few games for the Dogs, what sticks out to you in terms of how Hamilton has played at this tournament? What I can tell you, Rick, is uh, this is the fifth Memorial Cup that I've covered uh, over the course of my career, and, and I've seen teams fare differently throughout and what i mean by that is that some teams start out like gangbusters and and dominate the tournament and and you know win the whole thing quickly others almost like what we've seen with with team canada at the world juniors at times maybe they struggle a little bit out of the gate and then start to find themselves a little bit and i i feel like that's almost what we're seeing from hamilton Uh, remember this is a hamilton team that went seven games uh, against the windsor spitfires and and, uh, you know, did not have a good opening night against St. John back at the beginning of the tournament. But, uh, you know, we're, we're neck and neck with the Cataract in, in that one goal loss and then picked up what was essentially a one goal win, although it ended up being a 4-2 victory with an empty netter uh, over Edmonton to keep themselves alive uh, in the tournament on Friday night. So I, I feel like this team has gotten better through the tournament. And, uh, you know, for them, they kind of need that, I think, going into a game against a very tough Shawinigan Cataract team tonight. Shawinigan started their tournament with two straight wins, including a 3-2 victory over Hamilton. Um, how have the Cataract looked to you? Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. Shawinigan throughout the course of the season was a team that was kind of under the radar a little bit. They weren't hosting. They weren't really, uh, you know, they weren't the Quebec Remparts, which was the other team that wanted to host this tournament this year. But they were a team that that dealt with injuries all season long, and it really took until toward the end of the season and into, into the playoffs before we saw the the real Shawinigan Cataract team. They're a team that has some real game-breakers up front. Maverick Bork and Xavier Borgo are both NHL first-round picks. Pierre Dubé is a 20-year-old that they picked up midway through the season, and he's been really, really good for them in the, in the playoffs. And and, uh, you know, those guys, those three in particular, with some others that, that have played very well as well, really carry this team. And, and uh, you know, when, when you look at the way they've handled this tournament so far, they've played both of their goaltenders. They're, they're perfectly comfortable to do that. They're both 19 years old, and, and both guys uh, played a fair amount this year. Shawinigan is a, a, a team that, that is what I would call sneaky good. They've got that. They've got those game breakers, but then sometimes it's not the game breakers that beat you. And, uh, you know, they're they're a real tough opponent for, for anybody, not just for Hamilton tonight. They're a real, very good team. And, and you know, it, it'll be interesting to see how they handle this game tonight coming off of the disappointment from Saturday. They had that 3 nothing lead in the first period. They let it slip away. This is junior hockey after all. It's not 
the old, uh, you know, 90s and early 2000s NHL where, you know, a team got a 3 nothing lead and it was completely locked down. Uh, you know, they had the 3 nothing lead against St. John. They had the game within their grasp and they let it slip away. Now they have to try and regroup here tonight against Hamilton. It's going to be a really interesting matchup to watch. we got about 30 seconds. Uh, who wins tonight? Oh, boy, that's a tough question. Um, you know, I, I, I would I would uh, hesitate to bet against either team, really. I, I like what I said uh, earlier on. I like the fact that Hamilton's getting better as the tournament goes along. Uh, I, I, I would I would see them potentially picking up maybe a one-goal win here tonight after a couple of one-goal losses earlier on. It's going to be fun to watch, Tim. Appreciate your time. Enjoy the rest of the tournament. Thank you very much. That's Tim Roselle, Moncton Wildcats play-by-play announcer, freelance journalist in Atlantic Canada as the Bulldogs and Shawinigan duke it out tonight in the semifinal of the Memorial Cup. Puck drop just after six. The winner will take on the host St. John Sea Dogs in Wednesday's tournament final. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. On the far side, Miko Rantanen. Up ahead, Manson. Three on two. McKinnon tried to give it back. Just Arturi Lekkinen. That is Chris Cuthbert on Sportsnet last night as the Colorado Avalanche won the Stanley Cup. They ended Tampa Bay's bid to become the first team in almost 40 years to pull off a three-peats. Colorado beating Tampa Bay 2-1 last night, winning their third-ever Stanley Cup championship and the first since 2001. Here to recap what was a phenomenal series is Brian Murphy, NHL content producer with the Sporting News. Brian, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Doing well. Doing quite well. How about yourself? I'm okay. I guess we can say the best team won the Cup. I would certainly say so. I mean, this was a team that came in preseason favorites, were the favorites again at the trade deadline, favorites entering the playoffs, and uh, won the won it all, obviously. So for sure, the best team throughout the entirety of the season eventually comes out on top at the end. How did they put it all together? Because as we know, you know, every team has a wart or two. Colorado might have the fewest of them, but how did they get it done? I, there's there's just so many good things about their game that they're able to hide some of their weaknesses. I think if you talk to anyone, their goaltending probably was a big question mark throughout the playoffs. But they just limit so many chances uh, coming from their opponents in their own zone that it kind of, you know, they're able to hide Darcy Kemper's weaknesses at time. And he was exploited at times. He did not have a good game three, let up a couple of bad goals in game five. But when they're really limiting those offensive chances that the Lightning had, uh, and they're able to be just so good on the other end, the offensive zone, they're able to come through. Obviously, the big thing with them is their speed. Very noticeable that they're probably the fastest team in the NHL, and they constantly are using that to their advantage. And I just don't think the Lightning were quite ready to handle that. What do you think Tampa Bay's legacy is going to be? Two-time defending champs almost pulled off the three-peat. What's their legacy? Well, it's hard to say. I think there's no denying that this was the best team that the Lightning had faced in the three postseasons that we've seen them go to the finals. And there's look, there's going to be some questions considering the 2020 Stars got hot at the right time, but really weren't that strong of a team. We all know about the 2021 Canadians going on that Cinderella run. But this is a team that still went to the finals three times, and they have their core still intact, and we'll see what they end up doing next year. But this is still a very, very good team. I think they did need the win this year to really cement their status as an NHL dynasty but this is a team that we're still going to be talking about for years to come for just how good they are. And they're not done yet. We'll see. They still could very well come back next year and get that third cup in four years.
Yeah, their window is still wide open with the likes of Stamkos and Kucherov and Point and Vasilevsky and Hedman, and the list goes on and on. They have an embarrassment of riches. And John Cooper behind the bench is one of the best coaches as well. In Colorado, is this the start perhaps of an avalanche dynasty? I think we can certainly see that. They have some questions going into the offseason, but for the most part, their core is intact. They're probably going to lose Nazem Kadri, who will be a big loss for them. I just think that he's due for such a big payday that he's kind of played himself out of Colorado's uh, price range. However, you still got McKinnon. You still got Landis Cog, You still got Rontanen. They've got Makar. They're going to have this core, and they're going to have this core for a very long time. And as moves that we saw Joe Sackick make, I think we're going to see him do it again, where he's going to address the holes that they have at the trade deadline season after season. They're going to be a contender. It would not shock me to see this Avalanche team kind of go on a lightning run, where they're going to be going to the finals three, maybe four or five years. Who knows? But we'll see. But this is a very, very strong core that's intact for the next few seasons. And they've got a very capable GM that can address the needs that they have have throughout the season and it would not be surprising to me to see this team eventually become a dynasty like we saw the lightning before our eyes our guest on good morning hamilton on 900 chml brian murphy nhl content producer with the sporting news as we chat about a game six last night between colorado and tampa where the avalanche won the stanley cup for the first time since 2001 you mentioned kale mccarr the con Smythe trophy winner is uh, nhl playoff mvp 29 points in 20 games uh, already a superstar Norris Trophy uh, winner is the, the NHL's top defenseman. What more can you say about this budding superstar? I mean, it's it's absolutely incredible we're seeing this kid doing it. 23 years old, he's got a Calder Trophy, a Norris Trophy, a Stanley Cup, and as well as the Conn Smythe. Just absolutely incredible. Things that we have rarely seen throughout the NHL in its history. He was only the third player to win both the Norris and the Conn Smythe in the same season. I think we had a, the conversation with Kale McCarr, especially during this season, was, is he the best defenseman? And in my opinion, his play in the postseason – uh, cemented his status as that. I think he, previously that was held by Victor Hedman. And I do think that Kale McCarr now is the best defenseman in the NHL. And by the end of the playoffs, I think we legitimately had to have the conversation of where he ranks out of all players. And I think there is a very, very strong argument to be made that he's a top five player in this league. You know, the ability that he has in both ends of the ice, this isn't your typical offensive-minded defenseman where you have to sacrifice a little bit in your own zone for him to produce offensively. This is a guy that uses his speed and has such good skill when it comes to his own zone. I mean, we saw how... E, quote unquote easily it was able to defend a player like Connor McDavid we've never seen anyone be able to defend the way Kale McCarr did against the likes of Connor McDavid this is a special special player he's going to win more Norrises he's probably got another Stanley Cup or two uh, in his future and it wouldn't shock me if he's got another couple of consmice as well yeah if he's in the top five they got another one there as well in, in Nathan McKinnon and uh, now both Stanley Cup champions Brian appreciate your time today thanks for recapping what was a phenomenal final and uh, we'll talk to you down the road Appreciate it, Rick. Enjoy the day. Brian Murphy, NHL content producer with the Sporting News. And congratulations to the Stanley Cup champion, Colorado Avalanche. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're ready to unite behind a positive vision. Ready to unite behind a plan for the future of Ontario. And I truly believe, I feel it in the bottom of my heart, that this is a government that must 
represent everyone. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. That is the voice, of course, of Premier Doug Ford last Friday as he was sworn in as Ontario's Premier once again and also announced his new 30-person cabinet on Friday. There are some changes to this cabinet. Let's discuss what this looks like with Kim Wright, principal and founder of Wright Strategies, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Kim, good morning. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm okay. A lot of highlights that uh, have come about from this new cabinet. Maybe we'll start with the one that's caught the most fire, and that is uh, Doug Ford's nephew, Michael Ford, being named the Minister of Citizenship and Multiculturalism. Is this is this nepotism at play? Yeah, I know that's the easy hot take, um, but I've known uh, now Minister Michael Ford for a long time, even before he got into politics. He's been a school board trustee. He's been a twice-elected Toronto City Councillor. He's actually really interested in process and helping people, and so I I suspect that's not quite the hot take you were hoping for or thinking about, but I will say this. um, He was a good choice for a minister, but for the fact he was the nephew of, uh, so he still remains a good choice for a ministerial portfolio. The biggest change comes with the health ministry. Of course, Christine Elliott uh, did not seek re-election. Um, former Solicitor General Sylvia Jones is now the health minister and the deputy premier. Your thoughts on that appointment? Yeah, not the one I would have put into the health minister portfolio, but Premier Ford quite trusts Minister Jones. I did during the pandemic. Um, it... it um, there is a lot to be done in the healthcare portfolio, to be sure. Hopefully, she will be a little more willing to listen and do what needs to be done than she was in some of the, you know, closing of parks during the pandemic and 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 some of those things. But the premier trusts her, and he needs a he needs a voice that he trusts in that portfolio. I'm a bit more concerned, uh, Rick, on the long term care front that he left Minister Calandra in as a part-time minister, I I would call it, because he still has the House leader duties and legislative affairs uh, ministerial portfolios. You could have put in a full-time minister of long-term care if we were really uh, concerned about getting that iron ring around long-term care that the Premier likes to talk about. Absolutely. Who would have been your choice as health minister? Who were you thinking was going to get that? Uh, there were certainly questions about whether or not Caroline Mulroney might move out of transportation into that portfolio. Um, there was also talk that uh, Minister Jill Dunlop would move out of her portfolio uh, into there. But mostly what we saw on Friday is that the Premier wanted to keep most of the senior uh, senior folks uh, in his cabinet intact in a, in a way to sort of keep that continuity, that steady as she goes. Uh, less less headaches, less drama uh, approach to cabinet making. So there are there are some other choices, but uh, this is where the premier's comfort level is. And with a recalibration of health of healthcare coming, both in the structurals of hospitals, but also community based healthcare, uh, he needed someone he could trust in that role. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Kim Wright, principal and founder of Wright Strategies. And uh, we're talking about Doug Ford's new 30-person cabinet that he unveiled on Friday. It has a little bit of a local flavor, and that is Hamilton East Stony Creek MPP Neil Lumsden, replacing Lisa McLeod as the Minister of Tourism, Culture and Sport. Your thoughts on Mr. Lumsden, who is new to uh, Queen's Park, getting a ministerial portfolio? 
Yeah, he was certainly a star recruit for the Premier, but I also look at what is his experience, and and that really has been uh, where Neil Lumsden sort of stands out. This is this is a uh, almost a tailor made. Uh, portfolio for him, given his background in the CFL and in the cycling community, with Commonwealth ba- Games coming to Hamilton soon. Like, there's lots of things that on the sports uh, side of things that he is well known for. I, I think the cultural communities are curious about how he wants to approach uh, them. We look at art galleries and and museums, but. It also this is also a ministry that oversees a lot of the Trillium Foundation funding. So, how he will want to approach that uh, versus how Minister McLeod uh, looked to those those are going to be question marks. But uh, but certainly there are a lot of communities that have gotten their uh, curling rinks and hockey arenas uh, over, you know overhauled over the pandemic because of funding from Trillium. So we're looking to see how that those appointments will go as well as the minister. But I think it was a good choice for for Mr. Lumsden. Could it also be viewed as a reward for winning a riding that has primarily been NDP or Liberal over the years? Because I look to another local MPP in Donna Skelly who won re-election and is not in cabinet. Yeah, I, I think it was really, I, I, I am a bit surprised that there was an overlooking of, of Donna Skelly. I think she has been a really good foot soldier for the for the Premier, so I was a bit surprised that she did not make it into Cabinet. Uh, but the Premier has a comfort level with Neil Lumsden. Um, and yes, bit of a reward for, for flipping that seat, but the Premier had made no, no bones about the fact that he wanted Neil Lumsden and wanted him in Cabinet even when he was recruiting him. Uh, Green Party leader Mike Schreiner called the cabinet discouraging after only seven women in the 30-member cabinet were named. Uh, That's down from nine in the previous 28-person cabinet. Uh, Your thoughts on fewer women being in the inner circle? You know, I I agree with Mike Schreiner and and many others who have said that. Look, with 83 uh, seats, the premier could have brought in really amazing women uh, that are part of part of his caucus. He chose not to do that. He could have promoted some of the ones that were parliamentary assistants and 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 moving in, into different places. Overall, I think that that is always a disheartening uh, way to approach uh, cabinet making. Of we need this many boxes checked off here, or this you know from the north, or this here. Uh, I think that is something that the premier is going to have to answer for. But also. You know, it, it makes for just better cabinet uh, decision making when you have a, a wider variety of voices at the table. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Before we let you go, um, who are you hearing are the serious contenders in the leadership races for both the NDP and Liberals? Yeah, the New Democrats, uh, and and they'll be choosing their their structure uh, this week and their and their interim leader. Uh, tomorrow evening. Uh, but the early candidates I'm looking at are Marit Stiles from uh, Davenport Riding, Mike Mantha from Algoma, Manitoulin, um, Catherine Fife out of Kitchener-Waterloo. Those are the ones that are, are really sort of standing out in my mind. There's some others who are looking at the, the, the job. It's a big job, a big province, and uh, you really have to want it uh, to get to the place of for the new Democrats looking to form government, so uh, it, it's a big job and a big opportunity. And so those are the folks that I'm looking to in these early days of that. On the liberal side, uh, that's a bit more all bets are off. Where the new Democrats are more looking for somebody who's already an elected, the liberals may take a different approach given that they only have eight seats. 
they may look for somebody external to to revamp and revitalize, but uh, I'm not sure they've got another Justin Trudeau type in the in the wings waiting to revitalize their uh, their world. So we're we're certainly looking looking forward to seeing those names coming up. It's going to be fun to watch. Kim, always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. That's Kim Wright, principal and founder, Wright Strategies, and uh, joins us to talk about the big happenings in politics, both local, provincial, and national as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. What is going on with the tech sector? Have you been paying attention to this? High inflation, interest rates, hikes, uh, falling cryptocurrency has all contributed to 20,000 tech jobs over the last two months vanishing just like that. Moshe Lander is a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Moshe, good morning. How are you? Good morning. What's happening with the tech sector? What's going on? Uh, it's getting its comeuppance. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, you know, it, it it's really just with the, the Fed leading the charge of uh, tightening up the uh, financial sector with with rising interest rates, the tech sector is always one of those uh, industries that has a questionable business model at the best of times. And so it's now being exposed, especially in the crypto market, as having a really, really questionable business model. And higher interest rates are just pushing a lot of uh, investors to say, uh, you know, the emperor has no, no clothes and they're running away. So why is the business model questionable? What are they not doing correctly? So... In in the crypto market, for example, if I challenged a you know a hundred of your listeners, let's say, uh, what exactly is crypto? Uh, probably the vast majority of them would say, "I'm not quite sure." And if you said, even if you know what crypto is, what do we use it for? The vast majority of them would say, "I don't know." So it, it's very difficult then to say that Bitcoin is worth sixty thousand dollars per Bitcoin when the vast majority of people don't know what it is, what it's used for. And of course, there was a huge amount of speculative buying. If you remember during kind of the height of the pandemic, when everybody was sticking their money into GameStop and thinking that that's the game of the day, um, those types of things don't make a lot of sense when borrowed money is becoming really expensive. Has the tech sector grown too quickly? Is that why they're shedding jobs? Yeah, I mean, it, that's the nature, I think, of, of the business cycle, right? When you're on the upswing, uh, you, know, you hire people, you expand, you look into markets that maybe you didn't look at before, markets that weren't profitable maybe now look profitable. And so the tech sector is no different than the retail sector or the food and beverage sector. It's just, uh, you know, they, they really benefited from low interest rates. Uh, and from a 10-year period where we kept talking about interest rates being at record lows, so because they may be overexpanded, they're also going to be the first ones that contract as well. We're talking about 20,000 tech jobs vanishing over the last two months in the uh, the tech world with Moshe Lander, senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. What's the impact going forward of these vanishing jobs? And can we see more of them uh, go by the way of the dodo bird? Uh, yeah, I mean, more jobs are probably going to disappear. And I think what you're going to see is a bit of a rationalizing out of, of the industry. I'm not saying that Google is going down or Facebook has had it. Uh, even if we're talking about crypto, you know, Bitcoin is probably going to be a survivor here on name recognition alone. But, you know, that's the nature of an economic downturn is that it clears out some of that dead weight 
Uh, and th that should be seen as a good thing. Uh, of course, if you're one of the 20,000 that lose a job, or if you're one of the uh, 200,000 that's at risk of losing a job, it it's the thing that can keep you up at night. But uh, clearing out dead wood is exactly what recessions are for, and, and we should actually be welcoming it. What are the odds, and uh, my guess is probably pretty good, that these 20,000 and even more so who are going to lose their jobs are going to create something new and something exciting and something viable? It, it, it's 100%, and, and that's why we should be welcoming it, right? Remember that whenever you have an economic downturn um, and you have people that lose their jobs, all they're saying is that the current employer can't find a valuable use for those resources. It's not just people that are going to lose their jobs, right? There's going to be uh, floor space, rental space that becomes available. There's going to be uh, computer systems and things like that that become available as well. And so it's just businesses acknowledging that they can't put it to a productive use, but somebody's going to come along and say, for the right price, I can. And that's what leads to new businesses, new industries, new ideas, innovation. And ultimately, it's going to be the thing that turns the business cycle in the other direction. We have growth, which we'll be talking about in a couple of years time of, of what a great thing the economy is right now. The metaverse is uh, on the way, on the horizon. People are already investing in it. Could that also be a big job creator in the not too distant future? Eventually. I mean, if we go back maybe 20 years, give or take, remember, uh, everybody was talking about the next new thing of the internet, right? And it was almost, if we had had this sort of platform uh, in this sort of capacity, right, I'm talking to you on Zoom, uh, if 20 years ago, uh, we were saying, you know, what's this internet thing? And what's it going to be all about? It, it would be the same discussion. I don't know uh, what the business model is. I don't see how it's going to work, but it's time will come. And of course, it, it has. So, you know, I, I think that that's the the next sort of play that's coming out here is that we can see that there is something on the horizon, this metaverse, but again, it's it it's yet to shape itself and it's yet to present itself in a way that, you know, 20 years from now, when you and I are having this conversation, we'll say, you remember that uh, time when we knew the metaverse was coming, but we didn't know what it was. Should be exciting. Moshe, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us on Good Morning Hamilton. Anytime. Have a good day. You too. That's Moshe Lander, Senior Economics Lecturer from Concordia University, giving us his take on how high inflation, falling cryptocurrency, uh, interest rate hikes all playing a part in thousands of jobs, 20,000 over the last two months, vanishing from the tech sector. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It remains one of the more iconic theme songs from TV land and, of course, one of the most iconic TV series of all time. That is Game of Thrones. And some huge news coming out from the creator George R.R. R. Martin who confirmed that yet another sequel is in the works. There's a handful of them going on. This one, however, would star Kit Harington. You know him as Jon Snow. And he would play Jon Snow. And it's got a working title. Guess what it's called? No, it's not called Jon Snow. It's simply Snow. <laughs> um, as I mentioned, one of a handful of spinoffs that are in the works. There is one... That is going to premiere on HBO later on this summer. Mike the Birdman Todd is an executive producer with This Week in Geek. You can find it online at thisweekingeek.net. And Mike joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Mike, good morning. How are you? I am doing very well. Yes, I join you from the birdcage in the lovely city of Guelph, Ontario. And, uh, well, looking forward to more Game of Thrones. As uh, Arya Stark once said, fear cuts deeper than swords because this franchise has burned us once before as uh 
last season was, well, less than satisfying. But, mm-hmm. hey, who knows? Maybe this new series will be something fantastic, utterly amazing, and will leave us watching our television shows with anticipation on Crave or HBO or wherever we decide to see this. I'm excited, but I'm a little bit cautious here. Yeah, Game of Thrones ended in 2019, which almost seems like a, a, a lifetime ago. But the thirst, the hunger for more Game of Thrones content is still there. And when news of snow um, broke, uh, the Game of Thrones world just kind of erupted again. Yeah, it's one of those things where you don't often get a chance to find out what happens once an epic story has concluded. I mean, we were told about the House of the Dragon a while ago, and we found out it was going to be a prequel set a couple hundred years ago before the events of the books of A Song of Ice and Fire. And we're like, okay, that's cool, neat, whatever. But with Game of Thrones snow, we're getting a chance to see what happens. So if everybody wanted to course correct about what happened in the final season of Game of Thrones, now they can do that. They can listen to all the fan feedback that's happened. George R.R. Martin is still alive the people that kind of screwed up the last season are not involved anymore so they can really fix a lot of the things they want to do but one question that's going to be hanging over this franchise now is well who's the new bad guy i mean cersei's gone the night king is gone i was watching some videos on this preparing for this um well, one of the people who could potentially be making trouble for Jon Snow or some of the nations around um, Westeros might be people like the Iron Bank because they loaned Cersei an awful lot of damn money and they had their soldiers basically liquefied by uh, Daenerys and her little uh, dragon buddy there. So they could be looking for some serious kind of payback. When it comes to House of Dragon, that is a prequel, as you mentioned. Snow would be a continuation of the Game of Thrones story, and that seems to be more exciting. And there's, I think there's more of an appetite to that. Not only that is, you know, Kit Harington, if he does come back as Jon Snow, I mean, it's a marriage made in heaven. This is the best of both worlds to continue to see the story unfold with him in that role. Well, yeah, because you get to see him going north of the wall to live with all the um, wildlings, but you also find out whatever happens to the rest of the Stark kids. You get to see uh, Bran as the new king, Sansa as the queen of the north, whatever happened to uh, Arya. And I remember saying to my wife just after the finale aired, like, I want to know what happens to Arya. I mean, she's like the assassin from like um, Assassin's Creed. She can now like steal faces and do all sorts of crazy things. Sansa's turned into this wonderful leader, despite having all these terrible things kind of happen to her. And with Jon Snow having a rapport with the wildlings and everything, there's so much potential for stories here. You could really have something really kind of magical that isn't constrained by the books that had come previous before that. And now we don't know if it's going to be stories of revenge. Is it going to be new political intrigue that that made the original show so successful? 
And does it necessarily need the fantastical uh, elements of zombies and whites to kind of be the overlooming threat here? It could be all sorts of new and strange things because, let's face it, uh, HBO is going to need something to go up against Amazon Prime's Lord of the Rings series, which also launches later on this year and into the future. Well, there's going to be tons of content forthcoming in the years to come, I would assume, with uh, snow, with uh, shows like Snow, uh, other spinoffs that include The Hedge Knights, 10,000 Ships, The Sea Snake, uh, several others, I'm sure, are on the way. Mike, appreciate the conversation this morning. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll catch up sometime down the road when snow does in fact hit our tv sets i am looking forward to it and uh, as always you can find me at uh, thisweekingeek.net and at birdman dodd on twitter you got it that's mike the birdman dodd executive producer of this week in geek online at thisweekingeek.net you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml this story caught my eye jupiter yeah, we've we've had our solar system for eons. We've been around for a few thousand years. And we've now come to know how Jupiter became the biggest planet in our solar system, at least according to an article in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics. And, well, it's said that Jupiter grew and grew and grew because it had an appetite. Dr. Elena Hyde is the director of the Allen I. Carswell Observatory in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Hyde, welcome back to the show. How are you? Oh, wonderful. Thank you very much for having me. So, it, is, it is a fun topic. Yeah, so Jupiter, <laughs> Jupiter apparently ate other planets. Well, you know, um, at the time, there was a lot of planetesimal eating going on to be fair uh, so it it really is a question of the uh, the the evolution of the whole solar system and how jupiter got so big is um you know a little bit of gravity uh, attracts a little bit more and it just happened to accumulate enough mass to become um, basically a big attractor. And we've actually seen this recently, uh, 2021, I believe, Jupiter actually, uh, quote unquote, ate a, uh, an asteroid, we think. Wow. <laughs> so uh, it's it's been busy. Um, and it, this is actually a good thing for Earth because the more asteroids and comets and uh, things that Jupiter absorbs or deflects or eats, as if you will, um, that's less collisions for the inner solar system. And it's, uh, it's actually quite interesting the way that they've, they've done this particular study is they were looking into Jupiter to try to find out what kind of composition uh, Jupiter has. And if you think about it, it's called a gas giant planet. And it is mostly made out of hydrogen gas. If it was 20 times larger, it could be its own star and we'd have a whole different set of problems. <laughs> but um, as it is, even though it's mostly gas, it does have these heavier uh, elements in it. And that's a little bit more than what you could explain if it was just sort of sweeping up gas and dust in some sort of a giant initial accretion process, which is one of the reasons, one of the possible methods that they thought might explain how Jupiter got so large. So is Jupiter at its core like a physical mass or is it just a big ball of gas and energy? 
Well, as you go closer and closer to the center, things get very, very strange. And this also happens at Earth. So maybe as a little Earth analogy, as we go uh, deep into Earth's crust, we're all kind of maybe familiar with the model of Earth a little bit. We know that there's, there's lava under there somewhere as you go deeper and deeper. And that's because as you get closer and closer to the center, the pressures get higher and you get higher pressure, higher temperature. You get a different type of um substance right so underneath earth's crust we have lava which is liquid uh rock but underneath jupiter's clouds um you get things like liquid hydrogen and strange uh strange materials so stuff does not behave how we are used to and it might have some sort of core area but it's not going to be a solid like what you're thinking about walking on earth is a solid I'm not sure if you have the answer to this, but do we know the evolution of Jupiter? Did it start out as one of the smaller planets in our system and then just erupted in growth? Well, we don't know. Obviously, we weren't there to see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, and as a, you know, as scientists, we we would like direct evidence whenever possible. But uh, we have some good ideas, and by watching what's inside uh, the clouds of Jupiter now. We think that it did grow very, very rapidly. Um, And this actually uh, means that it wasn't just accreting gas and dust from the early solar system. So imagine that you are uh, flying through some sort of super gassy, dusty disk. And early on in the very, very first part of the formation of the solar system, there would have been a lot of material around in a disk helping to form the planets. So there was a lot there to be eaten. And whatever initial mass, uh, the thing that would become Jupiter had, (laughs) it would have been able to um, accrete gas and dust, but also there would have been a lot of what we call planetesimals, maybe Mars-sized or uh, maybe Pluto-sized objects floating around that you could collide with and um, grow your mass that way. And so we think that Jupiter had a lot of these collisions and a lot of this gas and dust development sorry (laughs) so it would have been really really chaotic and very very unpredictable so we almost certainly wouldn't be able to say exactly what one mass started it but if you think back again uh just to compare with earth Jupiter doing this all very quickly and gaining a lot of mass means that it does act as a bit of a shield for um, us here on Earth. We had a massive collision with a fairly large-sized object early on in our history that we think formed the moon. And we're still not sure how that one collision went exactly. (laughs) So knowing exactly what happened to Jupiter is going to be even more complex because it could have had many, many collisions and... uh, evolve you know over time but also it having a lot of mass very quickly means that it was able to then get more mass because the more mass you have the more mass you can attract you get uh, higher gravity so it's it's a it's a basically the the one who has the most has the chance of getting more yeah it's a fascinating topic and dr hyde i appreciate your time in uh sharing with us your knowledge about uh, what happened many many moons ago and uh, how it's keeping our earth uh, a little safer as well thanks for the time today 
Thank you. That's Dr. Elena Hyde, the director of the Allen I. Carswell Observatory at York University, also a, a, a professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.